with Natalia for part two of our conversation. Hopefully you took some time to listen to the first part of our conversation. And where we left off, Natalia was talking about why some Latinos um, who present as brown skin check off white on applications. So go ahead, Natalia. Sure thing. No, I think this is a really great question because uh, frankly, it really comes down to just not having the option really to select. There is no brown box, right, to select. And frankly, until this past census, and I'm really curious, frankly, to see um, as we get more information from this census, how things play out. But this was the first time that we were able to fill in how we identify before it really was you just had to select. And if you don't significantly identify as either native, which you could as Latino as well, right? But if you don't, um, or black or Asian really, then the only other option is white, <laughs> unless you're willing to say, I don't want to report or others. So that's the default, frankly. And there are absolutely white Latinos, but I would say there are a lot who select white just because that's the closest sort of default uh, box that they can check that makes sense. Sure. But wouldn't you say within groups of Latinos like Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, and even Colombianos that you get um, colorism within the culture? So long before somebody sees an application, they're already being indoctrinated with this idea that white is right and dark is not. I mean, isn't that somewhat universal among the cultures? Yeah, I think there's there's probably a bit of that too. And there's going to be variance amongst the different cultures. I will say that depending, you know, where you come, where your origins are within Central or South America, um, if we start including Spain, that's a bit of a different I think conversation, but, um, you know, we didn't even get into the fact, I know that we talked a lot about the identifiers of like Latino, Hispanic, Latinx, and now we're talking a bit more about how we identify racially, but we didn't even go into there's Chicano, there's Mulato, you just said Morenito, there's Blanquito, there's um, Mestizo, right? Like there's these different terms that are used to describe mixes, frankly. Um, the different mixes that have been going on in Central and South America for now hundreds of years. Um, so, gosh, you know, I, I, I don't even like where I'm going, Stina, is that I don't even feel comfortable saying within a particular culture, you're going to see more X, Y or Z. I think what what is a, a general what's safe to generalize amongst the different cultures is that there's absolutely still issues with what we now term colorism before it was internalized racism. So for that reason, yes, right. There might be um, sort of this overarching still uh, preference or push to recognize if you're fair or if you're lighter, there's a benefit there. Right. And we're going to call it out. And maybe you are rubia or Blanco or Blanca or whatever. But, uh, you know, I think I, where I'm going is it almost comes down to your family. Sure, yeah. yeah, yeah more yeah, than like yeah. that overarching culture. So whatever is really upheld within that extended family unit is where you might see that more. And um, 
And it's the flip side, though, too, because of language. Like, you know, we also call people negro and negra and these kinds of things as well. It's kind of, or gordo or flaca, which yeah, yeah. those who might not know that, you know, like it's it's so not, you try to- Hold on, pause. Gordo is referring to weight, right? It's chubby, yeah, or fatty, you know, in English, right? Which you would not use as like probably a term of like, oh, I'm just going to call someone this and not think there's going to be an issue, right? And flaco or flaca is skinny, right? Like so, but- yeah, it's it's different when you translate it into English, right? Because these could be terms of endearment. These could be insults, depending on how you use them in Spanish language. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, in this long-winded response, is just that in terms of how one might identify themselves racially, there can be those that might hear in the U.S. or even in, in the U.S., I would say Canada as well, who might present to others who are from here as a person of color, yeah. um, but they themselves may not actually identify as such. And that could be much more representative of how they were raised, yeah. the family unit, what they have decided to you know, keep keep ties to in terms of belief systems, as opposed to, I would say, like saying, you know, while you, cause I'm Colombiana, like Colombian culture as a whole would blah, 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 blah. Right. I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that per se. Um, but hopefully that made sense. Hopefully that made sense. It did. It did. Um, <laughs> and just cause I don't want to assume that um, folks are up on terms. Uh, can you define colorism and also yeah. I'm curious to know if you experienced colorism within your own family or culture. So colorism, it, it can be within a culture, but even more so within a, a racial group that there is a preference for those that are fair skinned. So uh, for example, in uh, throughout Latin America, but you still really see it more, I would say in sort of the Caribbean area, area. Um, but there's a term that it goes mejorar la raza or better the race. Mm. And mejorar la raza was a well-known term and it's still used again in certain pockets. And the concept is as long as you're having babies with someone that's fair skinned and getting us lighter and lighter, then you're helping better the race. So that's, that's coming. Well, rich culture. I've never heard that term before. You've never heard mejorar la raza. Oh, no. God. Uh, again, like, um, you know, uh, well, again, I'll, I'll use since I'm Colombian, like it's definitely, um, you know, I, it's more towards the coast um, in the Dominican Republic. I mean, you hear it a bit still in Puerto Rico. Um, it's been throughout. It's starting, I think, to lose a bit of traction, which is great. But I still bring it up because it isn't completely gone by any means. And it's 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 generational. I'll say that. Right. So older generations definitely um, have held on to that concept more. But it's a it's a great way to just showcase what we're talking about when we say either colorism these days or internalized racism. Now, I'm going to throw out something which maybe just to marinate on and even for for those listening to marinate on. But traditionally, it's always been this 
trying to become fair, right? Trying to become, um, because there's something inherently better in that. And that's all that white supremacy culture that we talk about, all of that. But there's a little bit of a boomerang happening in some spaces. And I'll only speak to what um, the little bit I've been able to see in, as I always say, Latino land, um, but actually the reverse. So now if you are super fair and you identify as Latino or Latina, um, perhaps you don't speak Spanish, right? You're maybe first or second generation. Then there are some darker skinned Latinos who might also see Spanish saying, then you're not Latino that you're not Latino enough, right? You're not, because you should be darker, you should be brown, you should be speaking Spanish. And, you know, we're not the only large diverse community that goes through through this, but it's interesting to see that this is, you know, there's a little bit of that now, that pendulum is swinging the other way, unfortunately. And I say, unfortunately, because I don't, I don't see really a benefit in either, um, but it just shows how, things evolve. And so that concept is evolving to now to now chastise those that don't that aren't as brown. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And so did you experience any of these dynamics within right. your own family or culture? And I'm referring to colorism. You know, not luckily not directly that I have memory to me, where I where it was something that was directed at me in any way. I am a tone, I guess, where I've always kind of been light enough to be in the light circles and dark enough to be accepted in the darker circles, if that makes sense. You know, I've been able to kind of, without without my complexion or my skin tone necessarily being picked at. That said, though, I have it around me in extended family and other like cousins or other extended family ha- witnessing it. And it's it's in that kind of microaggression space in the sense of it's maybe not outright like, oh, you're getting too, you know, like it's, it's things like don't go in the sun too much. You're going to get too dark. Yeah, right. Yeah. Things like that. Right. We, you don't want to get too dark. And if you, if you were to pick at that, why does that matter? Why is it my health that you're concerned about? No. Right. Like it's, it's societal acceptance. It's, you know, you don't want to be too dark. You don't want to get too dark. That means something negative. Um, and that's still, I actually just had a, I just had a whole session with a, a group that we all identify as Latinas. Um, many were of Mexican origin or descent and set all of them had stories around parents saying things like that, that not getting too dark, you know, little la, like how that's really, um, so, so it's carried on in those, in those ways and in many many families yeah and my own family um we mm. uh, i i experienced colorism and i i think yeah. about it and i always say there's nuance around these issues oh, yeah. and so i i won't say that um you know people in my family are without sin or without flaw or have their own internalized oppression but I also recognize that somebody like my grandma, who used to scrub my skin with her little brush mm-hmm. um, to keep my skin light when I was lighter, she did all she could to keep my skin white. Um, I wrote a little poem around it um, a while ago. And um, I think my grandma reflected on her own upbringing as a dark skinned Haitian woman who didn't have the soft long hair. And here she was later on in life 
with a lighter skinned child or grandchild with softer hair. And she wanted to preserve that because she knew that that would confer some advantages for me later on. Now, I'm, 100%, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I have darker skin now. I'm brown. And it's funny when my brother calls me light skin, I'm like, whoa, whoa, what are you looking at? Because um, he's darker than I am. And he seems to think that I have advantages in my skin tone. And I just don't see he and I as being drastically different in skin tone. But anyway, um, I don't just look at folks as being basic um, because they um, bought into the colorism. Yeah. And Stina, to your point, not to cut you off, but I think this is really important to underscore when we're talking about it. Absolutely. It's coming from a place because I want, like anybody, I want my child, I want my grandchild to be able to do better. I want them to have more advantage. I want them to have greater opportunity. Right. I mean, this is this is a common trope wherever you go. Of course, there's always exceptions to the rule, right, of like families and everything. But I think for the most part, that's like that's some, a, a shared sentiment amongst uh, our parents, our grandparents. So the same. I mean, that's where it's coming from, right? It's this sense that this is how it is. This is how society is. This is what it dictates. dictates. And so it's what can I do to help set you up to, yep. to hopefully have that greater opportunity or that greater advantage? Um and it's so generational. I, I, as of even just last week, if not even a couple weeks ago, I, I have a grandmother who is not Latina. Okay, she's not, um, but she married a Colombiano. Um, I'm talking about having a child, and that's a whole. Yeah, I know. I'm having. What, hold on. What does your grandma identify as? She's a white woman from Lafayette, Louisiana. So she's French. She's French Cajun. Blood uh, relative. That's my grandma, grandma. Yeah, she married a Colombiano. Oh, okay. Ended okay. Up in Colombia. That's a whole other story. But yeah, yeah so that's my grandma, uh, who I adore and very close to. But I'm on a journey and, and thinking about having a kid and all of this kind of stuff. And one of the first things out of her mouth was like, oh, well, of course, you're going to pick a, a blonde, uh, blue eyed person to have a kid with. And I just stopped her and I was like, of course. Why do you say that like that? That's such a weird way to say that. Why would you say that? And she goes, oh, well, because, you know, I remember too, you know, also with Latinos and stuff, right? She remembers that, like the mejor la raza and everything. She goes, it just seems like a thing. And I was like, well, and I, again, she's 95 going on 96, right? So like also her memory is choppy and everything, but we had this really interesting dialogue and I kept pressing, I kept pushing her. And I was like, why did, that was such a knee jerk response. You didn't even think of that, right? That just like popped out of your mouth. Like it was the most normal thing. Why would you presume that of me? Why do you think I would gravitate? And she's like, well, darling she finally got frustrated with me and she's like because that's the world and because we were horrible and there was slavery and all of this and people wanted to have their kids have better lives and that's how it is and and I know and we've been fighting for it to be better but it's still the case and so I'm just saying like well maybe you might not maybe you might not but people still do that people still think that way and it, there's still something to it and I just and I was like yeah, man. I was like, this is why I do the work that I do in many respects, right? Trying to push, push, push us into a different reality, but this is still the case yeah, yeah. in so many ways. And so, so yeah, I get it. Like, I get it. I get why a parent or a grandparent, and especially someone 
you know, different generation coming maybe even as an immigrant from a different country and their kids are first generation here. Why they're not necessarily trying to be the activist pushing the envelope. They're just like, hey, let's just yeah. get you as many advantages as possible. Right. And part of that, unfortunately, is still this. Well, if you're white, it's going to be better. <laughs> if you're white, it's right. You know, um, they grew yeah. up in an era and it's hard to unravel all of that. And so you offered a great opportunity to segue into my next question, which is why you got into this work around helping organizations uh, do better around identity and I'm assuming race in particular. So I'm actually getting more into that arena with race being called out, right? And more specificity. But I will say for me, definitely identity is important. Um, that can be many different things, as you know, <laughs> this podcast. Um, but also, I would say the element of intercultural competency or cultural competency is really uh, the lens that I, I focus my work through and what I really bring to the table um, with those that I work with. Because I have counterparts that are absolutely, I would say, much better versed at dealing with things in the racial justice space. Um, and my intention is to collaborate more with individuals like that than to come to the table presuming that I would be the person to fill, fit all of those boxes, right? Or to check all of those boxes. Um, and also like the diversity, equity, inclusion, justice spaces are constantly evolving yeah. as well, right? Um so for me, in terms of why I got into this work, uh, actually, Clark was where I first started doing a kind of focus on like cultural studies, sociology, things like that. Um, and I think it, it really drew me because I have always wrestled with purpose in place and I have wrestled with what is my identity being multiracial, being multicultural, being multi uh, national, right? Uh, Multi-ethnic. I'm. I don't even know if I said this before, but there's an expression that says "ni de aquí, ni de allá." Not really from here, not really from there. And I flip that because I always say I really identify with that because I'm not fully Colombian when I'm in Colombia. They know immediately I wasn't raised there. I've. I'm always the other here, right? I'm always like, "Well, where are you from?" <laughs> like I'm never American enough, right? In a sense, um, and. You know, when I'm in Canada, it's similar. Um, so where I'm going with that is that, um, you know, I flipped it and now say more de aquí y de allá. I am from here and from there. The older I've gotten, the more I've embraced mm. the the element of being many things, and yep. and um, and that that's that is my makeup, but. That is why I think I am so, so passionate about when you say an organization or institution finding their identity. To me, you know, you, we can boil that down to real business land, talking about your why, you know, the Simon Sinek approach of things, all of that's leading with your why. If we're in philanthropy, if we're in nonprofit, it's that mission-based type of work, right? So then it's really identity is, I think, attached to that. What is our mission? What is our vision? What are we trying to solution for? But every entity is made up of groups of individuals. And so I always try to boil it down to what is the organization or institutional identity, but also what's happening at the individual or team level when it comes to 
not even just identity, but also that intercultural understanding, intercultural competency, because that's really, as I like to frame it, how, how, what do we do with difference? How do we engage with it? Were you involved in student clubs uh, around identity in college? When I think about you in college, we worked at the general store together uh, and we used to cross paths at parties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Again, it was high school. High school, I was president of the student of color organization. I was president of the student body, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was super involved. I was super little. College for me was just a unique little hiccup in my, in my, in for me personally. I, I'll be, I'll be real on this podcast. I just like, I became a huge stoner in yeah. college. I didn't, I, I didn't want to name that. Anything. I'm like, I'll let you put that out there. If you want. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I got no shame. It's all good. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I was just, I mean, that's why I, I really was desperate to study abroad. And I ended up doing that and then taking more time and staying more time in, in Spain because I was just, I wanted such a different experience, but uh, yeah, no, I didn't really engage in that stuff in college. I kind of checked out and was just trying to get my my butt through it in a sense. Um, yeah. And I asked that question intentionally because there is this sense from people that, you know, the, the path is linear. So you're an activist in high school or college and you continue to be an activist and you're an activist, activist, activist. And it's like, no, you can come in and out of these spaces for any number of reasons. And so for me, for the longest time, uh, I would say through most of high school, the light switch was off. I didn't know what was going on. I was just sitting in a seat, taking a test, getting a grade, and then went through this critical thinking activity that really unearthed some things for me. Um, It made me realize that I was in the dark and I hated that feeling of being naive and ignorant about dynamics around me. I mean, one of my white friends, I noted this in another episode, a white friend educated me about affirmative action. And so um, in my junior and senior year of high school, this awakening occurred and then it went through um, college. Mm-hmm. And then for a little bit after college, I stepped out of that activist space and then went back to it um, because, you know, self-care is a thing. When, you, when you're an activist, you got to take care of yourself. And so I intentionally asked you that question because I want folks to really understand and appreciate that um, the journey isn't linear, um, but regardless, you're doing meaningful work now. I know you recently went through a training around um, the intercultural development inventory. I want you to talk a little bit about what that is and why you decided to do the training. Tune in to part three of our conversation to learn more about the intercultural development inventory. Until the next episode, keep reflecting. Identity and the identity and the